We are going to continue in Joshua today. So Joshua chapter 10 and is going to be our text. And let's begin uh, by reading this chapter of Scripture together. It is a longer chapter, so bear with me. Buckle up. Uh, be ready to uh, read an extended portion of Scripture together, which is actually a good thing for us to do on occasion, um, just to read larger chunks. So let's read Joshua chapter 10, and remember, this is God's holy word. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, He feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ahijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hiding in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. 
when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and then they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna, and fought against Libna, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword. And every person in it, he left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lashish, and laid siege to it, and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lashish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lashish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lashish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lashish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all the kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer famously wrote these words. 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, if this is true, and I think that it is, then every Christian ought to ask themselves, what comes into my mind when I think about God? I would add that an important follow-up question to that is this. Does what I think about God line up with Scripture? And that's important because Scripture is where God has revealed himself to us in truth. So to ask whether you're thinking about God lines up with the Scripture is to ask yourself whether you're thinking about God is accurate, is true, or not. In other words, does our thinking about God represent God as he truly is or simply as we imagine or desire him to be? And answering the question, does what I think about God line up with Scripture? That isn't just about figuring out whether your view of God contradicts the Scripture in any way. That's important. But it's also about determining whether your view of God sufficiently is informed by everything that Scripture has to say about him. You know, often our view of God can be severely truncated or distorted. Our thinking about him, in other words, can be dominated by certain things that are revealed about him in Scripture and completely neglect other things which are revealed about him in Scripture. One of the things about God in Scripture, which is oftentimes absent from the way many Christians think about him, is this, that he is a divine warrior who attacks and destroys his enemies. And this is not a minor truth you know, tucked away in some obscure corner of the Bible. It's actually a major way that God is presented to us throughout the Bible. One of the places that you see this most prominently is in the book of Joshua. And especially this chapter that we've come to this morning. You know, you remember in Joshua chapter 6, God revealed himself... Uh, to Joshua as the commander of the armies of heaven with his sword drawn in his hand. And he said, I have come. Well, now, in this passage and in the next passage, we see Yahweh, the divine warrior, the commander of the armies of heaven, fighting against the Canaanites on behalf of his people Israel. Now, in order to see this, let's walk through the story of Joshua 10 again, uh, calling out some of its details more closely. Now, you remember that so far, the Lord has given Israel victory over Jericho and over Ai, and word of those victories Um, And how Israel then devoted those cities to complete destruction has quickly spread now throughout the rest of Canaan. In chapter 9, we saw that 
one group of Canaanites, the Gibeonites, responded to word of these victories by using trickery to get Israel to make peace with them. But the rest of the Canaanites decided they were going to try and fight against Israel. And that, you remember I said, was actually from God. Chapter 11, verses 19 through 20 tells us that God, that no Canaanites made peace with Israel so that they might be devoted to complete destruction. And in this way, God would accomplish two things. On the one hand, he would execute his judgment upon the Canaanites for their sin. And on the other hand, he would fulfill his promise to Abraham to give his descendants, the nation of Israel, this land as their own. Now, Joshua chapters 10 and 11, they provide then the inspired account of Israel's conquest of the rest of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. And chapter 10 tells us how they conquered the southern half of Canaan. Chapter 11, next time, is going to tell us how they conquered the northern half of Canaan. Now, of course, when I say conquered, I don't mean completely took over. We're going to see later on in the book of Joshua, and you can also see it in the beginning of the book of Judges, that there were still parts of Canaan that remained unconquered by the end of these northern and southern campaigns under Joshua. But they did destroy a large part of the Canaanite population during these battles that are described in these two chapters, so that by the end, Israel was definitely in control, the dominant power in the land. Now, chapter 10, verse 1, the first verse of our chapter describes how Israel's conquest of the southern half of Canaan got started. And it all began with a man named Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. By the way, it's interesting, if you have a concordance, you would notice this is the first time that the name Jerusalem appears in the Bible, even though it will be used over a thousand times in the Bible from here on out. Now, The reason it's used so much, obviously, is it became the capital city of the nation of Israel. But at this point, it was just a relatively prominent Canaanite city, and Adonai Zedek was its Canaanite king. And chapter 10, verse 2, tells us that Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, became greatly afraid. And he did so for two reasons. First, he heard how Israel had defeated Jericho and I, and how he had devoted them to destruction. And he knew this was foreboding of Israel's military power and what they intended to do to the rest of the cities in Canaan. Second, he heard about how the Gibeonites had made a peace treaty with Israel. And this was troubling to him for two reasons, I think. For one thing... Gibeon was a great city with a powerful army. So their submission to Israel not only showed the greatness of Israel, but it also weakened. It took some key players off their side and weakened their ability to fight against Israel. But also 
a map of this region would show you that the cities of the Gibeonites lay at a key crossway, a key point of access between the cities in the south and the cities in the north. And so their alliance with Israel threatened to cut off all the southern Canaanite cities from their counterparts in the north, which obviously would have military and economic uh, ramifications. And so he greatly feared when he heard about these things. So we read in verses 3 through 4 that Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, decided, my best chance is to make an alliance with four other kings in the region, to make a giant army and to attack, not the Israelites, we're not ready for that, but the Gibeonites, because they had made peace with Israel. Now this attack, of course, it wasn't just about punishing the Gibeonites, but it was about preventing them from joining forces with Israel and blocking their access to the north. So it says in verse 5, Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, in verses 6 and 7, it tells us that the Gibeonites sent word to Joshua, Help! Joshua and his armies were camped way down in Gilgal, just across the Jordan River. And they say, Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. And we see Joshua immediately agreed to do so. Now, you might be wondering, Why in the world would Joshua do this? I mean, you'd think there would be no love lost between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. After what had happened in the last chapter, the Gibeonites had tricked Israel into thinking that they were from some faraway land so that they would enter into a covenant of peace with them. And you remember that when Joshua and the Israelites found out that the Gibeonites were actually their Canaanite neighbors. They were understandably angry about being deceived and only reluctantly did they agree not to destroy them. And they only agreed not to destroy them because they'd made a covenant with them before Yahweh, their God. But why? Of course, they'd agreed not to destroy the Canaanites, these Gibeonites themselves. But why couldn't they allow other Canaanites to do it for them, right? Why in the world would Joshua agree to come to their rescue after what they had done? Well, I think that the answer is probably because of the kind of covenant that they had made with Gibeonites. It was common in those days for nations to enter into a a covenant called a suzerain vassal covenant, in which an inferior nation, the vassal nation, would agree to submit to a more powerful nation, the suzerain. And they would pay that powerful nation tribute in exchange for peace with them and protection from them. So when you look at Joshua's willingness to protect the Gibeonites from being destroyed by the armies of these five Canaanite kings, it probably indicates that Israel had entered into this typical suzerain vassal type of covenant with the Gibeonites 
which now obligated them to protect the Gibeonites, who in turn agreed to become their servants. Now, remember in the last chapter how the Israelites had murmured, had grumbled against the leaders of Israel for foolishly entering into this treaty with the Gibeonites, which prohibited them from attacking them. Now they're being asked to go up and defend the Gibeonites against these other Canaanites. Now you can imagine, they were probably less than thrilled with the prospect of doing that. So feel the weight of this. This is turning into a debacle, right? But in verse 8, you see that it was going to turn out to be anything but that. Now, an alert reader of the book of Joshua will have noticed by this point in the book that they haven't seen or heard from the Lord in some time. You know, in the first eight chapters of the book, he's described as interacting with the Israelites on a regular basis, speaking to them and acting on their behalf in various ways. And then the Lord falls silent in chapter 9. He's not described as speaking, not described as acting, all the way from chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 7. And then, when things seem to be going all wrong, when Israelite, the Israelites find themselves having to defend their new Canaanite vassals against a large army of other Canaanites, the Lord suddenly speaks in chapter 10, verse 8. And his words are not condemnatory. You know, you've made your bed, now you've got to lie in it. But they're encouraging. He said, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. And now a light bulb goes on in our heads. And we realize the Lord was about to use Israel's foolish covenant with the Gibeonites, which was such a disaster, to trigger now Israel's conquest of the rest of the Canaanites. He was going to graciously work through Israel's bad decision in chapter 9 to bring about his good purposes for them in chapters 10 and 11. And it's worth pausing here to note that this is not the only example of God doing this in the Bible, is it? Indeed, we know that God has been doing this throughout redemptive history. You go back to the book of Genesis and you remember that disaster with, with Judah's immorality with this Canaanite woman named Tamar and how the Lord brought about the birth of Perez through whom the Messiah would come. Or you think about how he used the patriarch's murderous hatred of their brother Joseph to make Joseph the ruler of all Egypt who would then turn around and save the brothers and the whole family of Jacob from a great famine. He used the adultery of David to bring forth Solomon, one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, who led them in unprecedented peace and prosperity. And of course, he used the wickedness of both the Jews and the Romans to accomplish the redemption of his people through the death of his son upon a Roman cross. You see, God works all things, both good events and evil events in history. 
both our wise actions and our foolish actions, as his people, he works it all together to accomplish the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. To accomplish his good purposes for us who love him and who are called according to his purposes, Romans 8.28. And we need to remember this. Not to make us lax about our obedience or to excuse our sin. Oh, it's okay, it'll all work out in the end. But rather to comfort us in the face of our folly and our failures. That while such things are bad and such things are destructive, they do not derail the perfect plan of God. So we can repent And we can move forward in obedience with joy and gratitude, not only in the knowledge that God is willing to forgive us, but also that he is able to weave the dark threads of our sin and failures into this beautiful tapestry of his perfect plan. So, the Lord's words in verse 8 indicate God is going to use this debacle of Israel's covenant with the Gibeonites to trigger their conquest of the rest of Canaan. And it would begin with a victory over the armies of this five-king coalition. So the Lord said to him in verse 8, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. In other words, just as he had done with Jericho and with Ai, so the Lord would give the armies of these five Canaanite kings into the hands of the Israelites as well. So Joshua, knowing this, led the armies of Israel on an all-night 15-mile march uphill from the camp in Gilgal up into the hill country to reach the city of Gibeon at the break of day. And we read this dramatic account of what happened next there in verses 9 through 11. It says, So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel... While they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven upon them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now I want you to notice the way that this account features the Lord. In all caps in your Bible, that means it's translating the name Yahweh. That Yahweh is featured as leading the charge into battle, as striking down the Canaanite armies so that they scattered and fled before Israel. In fact, there's an interesting little translational note in verse 10. So it says, The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. At that point, it's unclear whether the Lord or Israel is the subject of of the actions in the rest of the verse. The English Standard Version actually leaves it ambiguous. It says, Who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon 
and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Could be the who could refer to Israel or it could refer to Yahweh, the Lord. And I think there is actually good reason to believe that the subject actually continues to be the Lord through the whole verse, so that the rest of the verse is actually describing his ongoing action. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translates it this way. It says, The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. See, if that translation is correct, then Yahweh is pictured at the head of Israel's army, striking the Canaanites with such a blow that they are thrown into a panic and they flee before them, only to have the Lord chase them down and strike them from behind. Indeed, you see, verse 11 describes the Lord as wielding not just that sword that he brandished in chapter 6, but actually wielding great stones out of heaven whom he brought down to decimate their armies. Now, in the end, the author wants you to be clear. It was Yahweh, not Israel, who secured the victory over the armies of the five Canaanite kings. You can see that. It says, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. The Lord, to borrow Jeremiah's language, was Israel's dread champion, whose presence with them on the battlefield filled them with courage and struck terror into the hearts of their enemies. Indeed, Joshua seems to have been so caught up in the thrill of this amazing victory that the Lord was giving them over the Canaanite hordes, that verse 12 says, he dared to pray in the heat of the moment that the Lord would stop the sun from setting so that they could more thoroughly destroy their enemy. And wonder of wonders. The Lord answers Joshua's prayer. He caused the sun to stand still in the sky for a whole extra day to give Israel enough time to finish the job. Some of you more scientifically oriented people are trying to think in your mind how this works with physics and the spinning of the various um, planets and moons in uh, their orbits. In fact, it's interesting that this event that's described here, verses 12 through 14, Commentators have gone to great lengths to deny that it really means what it seems to be saying. You know, liberal commentators, of course, they come to the text with a bias against anything supernatural. And so they utterly reject, of course, that this actually happened. But even conservative evangelical commentators, again and again, opt for alternative explanations to what seems to be the plain meaning of the text. They all affirm, oh, of course, God could have stopped the earth from rotating so that the sun didn't descend in the sky uh, for a whole day. But so many of them go on to say, well, but that isn't really what the text is saying. So there must be some other explanation. You know, some suggest God must have caused the sun's light to be refracted so that it, you know, lingered a little bit longer than normal. Others say, you know, the language of the text could be interpreted so that what it's actually saying is the sun's light stopped. In other words, this is nothing but a solar eclipse. Others have said this is just poetic language. What it's really saying is that the Lord fought for Israel. 
But at the end of the day, I mean, call me simple, I don't see it. I mean, what does the text say? It says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ahijan. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There is no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Seems pretty clear to me. Joshua asked the Lord to keep the sun from going down in the sky so that they could keep fighting longer. And the Lord did it. And you think to yourself, wow, that's so hard. Well, he's the God who created the universe out of nothing in the beginning. Yes, it is an astounding miracle. It's unprecedented in human history. That's what the text says, right? And the author is describing it with poetic language. He breaks out into poetry when he describes it. Why? So that we might be even more amazed and more moved to astonishment to press home the extent to which, as the author put it in verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. He quite literally moved heaven and earth to give them a comprehensive victory over the Canaanite army. Now, incidentally, we can't move past these verses, can we, without reflecting upon what they say to us about prayer. That line, verse 14, There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. I couldn't help thinking of James principle that he articulated in James 5.16 when he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working and then he speaks of the example of Elijah praying and it not raining for three years and then he prays again and it starts raining from the book of Kings. Now the point of James though, it's not to say if the more righteous and fervent your prayers are, the more powerful they will be. That's not the point. The emphasis is upon the God to whom we're praying and His power, the God to whom believers pray is the Almighty, the Creator of the universe. Nothing is too difficult to him, for Him. So when people pray to Him, you know, as James put it, assuming they are living righteous lives, there's nothing hindering their prayers, they're uttering sincere prayers, the fervent prayer of a righteous man, right? But assuming all of that, There's nothing they can ask that is too difficult for God. And this is evident from some of the incredible miracles that he performs in Scripture in response to the prayers of his people. And of course, Joshua's prayer here in our text becomes sort of a preeminent example, doesn't it? So then, the scope of our petitions, brothers and sisters, should be proportionate to the omnipotent power of the God we are praying to. And so let's ask ourselves, are our ambitions in prayer, in other words, what we are seeking from God, are they as big as they ought to be? Do your prayers reflect an understanding that you are petitioning the almighty sovereign of the universe? Now, don't stop praying for small stuff, okay? Pray for the conversion of your neighbor. Just pray for the big stuff too. Pray for 
revival to break out in the Middle East. Oh God, you are able. Well, verses 16 through 27. The author goes on to tell us what happened to the Canaanite kings when their armies were routed by the Israelites. And the entire description here is designed to emphasize just the totality of Israel's victory and supremacy over these five kings. So when the armies of these kings, when they fled on the battlefield, the five kings tried to hide themselves in a cave in a place called Makeda, about 15 miles away from where the battle was fought. But some of the pursuing Israelite soldiers found these kings and reported it to Joshua. And Joshua ordered them to be sealed into the cave until they had finished wiping out their fleeing armies. And then he returns to the cave at Makeda, along with the army, along with the leaders of Israel, to execute judgment on the kings that are being held there. And before putting them to death and hanging their bodies on a tree until sundown, according to the ritual laid out in Deuteronomy 21, right, signifying that they were under God's curse for their sin, Joshua carried out another ritual first. And you see it there in verses 24 and 25. He had the leaders of Israel come and put their feet on the necks of these five kings. And while they were doing that, he said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus, this, the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. In other words, Joshua wanted the leaders of Israel to be confident. They were able to defeat and to destroy all the Canaanites in battle. Not because of their own military prowess, but because the Lord, Yahweh, the commander of the hosts of heaven, would put all their enemies under their feet, as they had done. he had done with these five kings and their armies. And then finally, the last section of the chapter. You see it there in verses 28 through 40. It describes how after this victory over the five kings at Gibeon, Joshua conquered the major cities in the southern half of Canaan. And the text describes Joshua and the armies of Israel conquering six kings. So the first one was Makeda, where they had captured and executed the five kings. And then he conquered Libna, Lashish, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. All major cities in the southern part of Canaan. Now in the case of Hebron and Debir, it says that Joshua destroyed both the city and the towns around it which I'm guessing, though it's not explicit in every instance, was probably typical of what they did. In the case of the three cities, Lashish, Eglon, Hebron, well, those are cities that belonged to those three of those five kings that they had already executed. But the text tells us that when they came to the other cities, they did to their kings just as they had done to the five kings. Now, in addition to this, the descriptions that, of the defeat of each of these cities, they contain some repeated phrases, right? You saw that in when I read through it. So, for instance, four of the descriptions say that Joshua and the armies of Israel devoted the city to destruction. There's that Hebrew word harem, which I've talked about multiple times. Five of them, it says, he left nothing remaining. All six say he struck every person in it with the edge of the sword. 
Now these phrases all emphasize not something bad, but actually something right. That God had commanded them to do this as part of his judgment upon the Canaanites. And for the protection of the Israelites, because if they let the Canaanites live, God said they would turn you your hearts away from me to worship idols. Now remember, I mention this every time because I, I, want, I realize that there's new people every week. I spent a whole sermon talking about the destruction of the Canaanites and helping you understand and wrap your mind around that and why it's not a bad thing, but it was a just and right thing. I encourage you to go back. It's titled, Did God Commit Genocide? So you should be able to find it easily and listen to that sermon if you're struggling with have questions on this issue. But these phrases actually emphasize that Joshua and the Israelites obeyed God's command to completely destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan, both for God's glory and for their good. Now finally, the chapter ends, verse 40 through 42, with this summary, an overview of everything that had happened in this, what you might call their southern campaign. It says, So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left nothing remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Now those verses, they sort of take you on this, you can imagine in your mind, a virtual tour through the, the southern half of Canaan. It covers all of its territory and it describes how one at a time the armies of Israel conquered each of the major cities in those regions in a, in a continuous series of battles. Now, of course, when it says in verse 40 that Joshua struck the whole land and devoted to destruction all that breathed, we shouldn't conclude that that means he conquered every city and every town and killed every Canaanite in southern Canaan because later on in the book, we're told that there were still places in these very regions who, that remained to be conquered. Instead, I think the point is that they conquered all of the major cities and towns throughout the region and killed every Canaanite who was in those places. Also, when it says in verse 42 that Joshua captured all these kings and their land, quote, at one time. Okay, we shouldn't think that this was a fast affair, right? This all happened in a matter of a few days. Moses had actually told them way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 22. He says, the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not take, make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. And later on in the book of Joshua, chapter 11, verse 18, the author actually says that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. So in other words, the conquest of Canaan is sort of described for you in rapid fire here in this text, but that doesn't mean it happened quickly in real time. It probably took much longer to unfold. But even taking all that into account, the success, of Israel's southern campaign, which is really what's coming across here, that it was a remarkable military success. And the text emphasizes they were only able to do this because the Lord, Yahweh, the commander of the hosts of heaven, their warrior God, fought on their behalf. 
And this is repeatedly emphasized, even here at the end, in these descriptions of their victories over the, over the six kings. It says, for instance, of the city of Libna, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. Verse 31, and the Lord gave Lashish into the hand of Israel. And then you get to the summary, verse 42, and it says, and Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord... God of Israel fought for Israel. Chapter ends with these words in verse 43. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to their camp at Gilgal. So they brought the southern half of Canaan under their dominion, and then they returned to their camp, just across the Jordan River there in Gilgal, to await the next step, which we'll look at in, verse, in chapter 11. So we've walked through this story of chapter 10, What's the main thing that we're supposed to learn from it? You know, this chapter, it's all about Israel's successful conquest of southern Canaan. But the story's told in such a way, have you noticed it throughout, again and again, to emphasize to the reader that the reason they were able to triumph over their enemies so completely was because, quote, the Lord fought for them. In fact, that phrase, the Lord fought for Israel, the Lord fought for them, It's there in verse 13. It's there in verse 42. But there are eight other references in the chapter to the Lord giving victory to Israel over the Canaanites, crediting it to him. And you remember that account of the first battle there in verses 6 through 11. It actually describes the Lord leading their armies into battle and striking the Canaanite armies down in dramatic fashion so that the victory ended up going all to him. So the main point of this chapter is that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God revealed in Scripture, is the divine warrior who fights for his people, who gives them victory over their enemies, and nothing can stop him. Now, of course, when you think of the Bible as a whole, you can't help but see that this theme, which is there throughout the Scripture, comes to its sort of culmination in the person of Jesus. He is the fullest expression of Yahweh, the divine warrior king. Jesus, of course, is the eternal divine person of the Son, the Son of God par excellence, the unique Son of God who has entered into our world, who has taken on a human nature that he might become the promised Messiah. And as the God-man, he is Yahweh in the flesh, our divine warrior come to fight on behalf of his people, the church, and to give us a full and final victory over our ultimate enemies. The New Testament describes God this way, Christ this way, if you have eyes to see it. First of all, when he came, he defeated our spiritual enemies of sin and death and the devil through his own death and through his own resurrection. Do you remember how Paul described this? For instance, just one text, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him that is Christ. There it is. Yahweh, the warrior God, triumphing over our enemies through the cross of Christ and his resurrection. But Jesus also promises to return. To return as our warrior king. To deliver us from our enemies in a full and a final way. First, he will vanquish all of our persecutors. The world that rages against the church when he comes to bring judgment upon the world. One of the most striking passages where you see this is 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10 where it says... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You see it? There he is, Jesus, the divine warrior king coming on the clouds of heaven. And what does he do? Inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified among his saints. But then, gloriously, Christ, on that day, when he comes with the archangel crying and the last trumpet sounding, he will defeat our last enemy, death itself, by raising us from the dead when he comes again, to live with him in glorified bodies, never to die again. Do you remember Paul's stirring words in this regard in 1 Corinthians 15, 52-57? He says, The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That will be the day when he puts our last enemy under his feet and stamps it to death. Death will be dead through the victory of Christ. And in the meantime, here we are, waging our spiritual warfare upon the earth, fighting sin within our hearts, proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth in the face of opposition, And we can know the Lord is with us like a dread champion through the indwelling Holy Spirit to fight for us, to give us victory so that we do not need to be afraid. Isn't that what Jesus in part intended when having risen from the dead just before his ascension, he gave his disciples that great commission and then he said to them in verse 19, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's certainly what you then see play out in the book of Acts, right? As the church does go out and make disciples. I think of Paul's words, or the words to Paul from the Lord in Acts 18, 9 through 10. He's preaching the gospel, he's getting pounded by the people in Corinth, and the Lord says to him, do not be afraid. 
But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Brothers and sisters, this main theme of Joshua 10, it's meant to encourage us in our Christian life, reminding us the same warrior God who fought for Israel to give them the victory over their enemies is with us. And he's doing the same for us today. He is Jesus Christ. Yahweh, come down in the flesh to be our Savior and our Lord. He is the one, for instance, who is described as the ultimate divine warrior in that great passage at the end of your Bibles in Revelation 19. Listen to what it says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That Jesus is your warrior king, the greater David believer. And he's with us in our present battle to fight on our behalf and to give us the victory over his enemies. God the Father, Psalm 110 verse 1 says, is putting all his enemies under his feet. And he will put them under yours as well as you seek to fight the good fight of faith overcoming patterns of sin, countering the effects of false teaching upon a family member, keeping your faith in the faiths of persecution, sharing the gospel with lost people in your life who are under Satan's dominion. You know those words of Joshua to the elders of Israel as they put their feet on the neck of their enemies. There's a sense in which they could be said to us as well. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And what about you here this morning who have not put your trust in Jesus Christ? You've not repented of your sin. You haven't begun following Jesus as your Lord. You, unbeliever, what does the message of Joshua 10 say to you? Well, let me put it bluntly. There's no neutral ground with Christ. Either you are with him, or you are against him. So there's a sense in which you are in the position that the Canaanites were in. You've been living in sin. You've been going your own way in life. You haven't cared about the will or purpose of your creator for you. And therefore his righteous wrath is upon you for it. And if you do not repent and you do not submit to the lordship of Christ, you will be among those he comes to vanquish on the final day. But there's hope. Jesus, this divine warrior, has defeated sin and death for everyone who will repent and believe in him through his own death and his own resurrection. Think of Peter's words, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So if you will forsake the merits of your own work and put your trust in Christ to save you by his sacrificial death, he will forgive you, he will reconcile you to God, because his love for sinners like you and me is so great. So repent and believe in Christ and you will be saved And then begin following as Lord, beginning by submitting to him in baptism and becoming a member of a local church. Brothers and sisters, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Does your view of God include the portrayal of him as the divine warrior king, which we have seen in Joshua 10? I want to let Dale Ralph Davis offer a final word of exhortation to all of us in this regard. He says this, The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy. Such a Jesus can hardly steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. We need to learn the catechism of Psalm 24. Question, who is the king of glory? Answer, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Psalm 24, 8. We must catch the vision of the faithful and true sitting on the white horse, the one who judges and makes war and righteousness. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. No mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us, that we have hope of triumphing in the muck of life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful text. We thank you for the time that we've had together reflecting upon it. But I pray that any teaching that I've given that might not be true to your word would just fall to the ground have no effect upon us. But to the degree that your word has been faithfully proclaimed this morning, let it have its full effect upon our souls. Increase our knowledge of you. Enlarge our hearts toward your son, Jesus Christ, that we might love him and submit to him and serve him in reverence and awe and adoration with greater faithfulness this morning. Forgive us of our dullness and our sin. Stir up our hearts by your spirit, we pray. Even by your word this morning, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.